This is the Mental Health Movement Podcast, Voice for the Voiceless, a weekly podcast hosted by Chris Milson, a podcast to help break the stigma of mental health and to remind everyone that it is okay to be not okay, and to remind those that they are never alone. Please also note that Chris is not a psychologist or psychiatrist and is speaking from research and experiences. Trigger warning for those for the possible explicit content and language. What's going on, Warriors? Welcome to another episode of the Mental Health Movement Podcast, Voice for the Voiceless. We are officially in the new year, so Happy New Year to you all. And we are starting a brand new season and a brand new guest. Uh, Today, we have a very special guest for our first episode. Uh, She is both a doctor of psychology and a licensed uh, marriage and family therapist. She is also the author of the two books, Trauma uh, Recovery Workbook for Teens, And then the book we're covering in today's episode, Gaslighting, a step-by-step recovery guide, Dr. Deborah Vinal. Deborah, how are you? I'm great. Nice to, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, for being on here. It uh, means a lot to get different perspectives. And I remember when I first reached out to you, I was kind of nervous because I was just like, she's very established. And I know some people are kind of iffy about getting on the show. So I greatly appreciated that you're on here. I'm glad we could make it work out. Yeah. Um, so before we uh, dig into the book a little bit, um, so I saw that you were originally from Canada. How did you end up in uh, Southern California? Well, I um, I first came down for a summer job um, in between my after my first year of college and uh, ended up falling in love. And so I ended up coming back later and um, just sort of built a life here. What um, what college did you attend again? Uh, originally, I was going to school up in Canada in Vancouver um, and then um, I didn't go back actually, um, and finish my degree at the time because of different funding and different reasons like that. Um, but I, com- I went on to complete my degrees here in California. Nice. Um, yeah. how was, how was the culture compared to Canada? Like was it a huge culture shock or is it just kind of like a little difference? You know, that's an interesting question. I reflect on a lot because I feel like the culture in the United States in, in my experience, which could be wrong, but feels that it's shifting a lot. So right now I feel like my experience of American culture is quite different from what I grew up with. And I don't think I noticed it as strongly at first, which is kind yeah. of the opposite of how it usually goes um, for somebody who immigrates between countries. Right. Yeah. Over the last, like, I'd probably say five, 10 years, it's, it's crazy because I, I have two younger siblings. So when I talk to them about the stuff that I went through, they just kind of look at me like I'm crazy. It's just like, it's hard to relate to them in a lot of subjects because like how I dealt with things isn't how anybody in society deals with things anymore. It's just kind of like, yeah, we don't do that anymore. We do things in a little more healthy way. And yeah, so I can only imagine how much of a culture shock that was for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what inspired you to get into this line of work with the mental health community? Well, I I started working with adolescents um, in my early 20s. I wasn't far removed from it myself, um, probably because I had had my own difficult adolescence and just, you know, my heart was there. Um, but then one of the youth that I was working with was just really in a hard place, um, some a very nearly lethal suicide attempt and uh in some very dangerous relationships and i realized like i was way out of my depth i had no idea besides like i just came there with a big heart and i realized it wasn't really you know it was big but it wasn't enough and so that pushed me to start looking into taking classes in like crisis counseling and adolescent psychology um and i loved it i it wasn't you know all of these biases i had had against psychology as you know i thought it was just like a way for people to manipulate you um i, I thought well actually this can really be helpful and that kind of ignited a passion in me and so then i went back to school like i said i'd only done the one year of college before that and uh i was studying theater at the time actually so i went back and studied psychology and um uh marriage family child therapy human development and um those degrees and moved into this field that's incredible you know it's it's amazing uh a lot of the people that i talk to including my own therapist uh has had experience in the crisis counseling like it's always interesting to hear where they started at versus 
where they are now. So it's always it's always nice to see most people in this field start out with like younger kids. And I always try to preach this message in my podcast. A lot of people don't realize what it means to be there for somebody until you actually have to be there. And when somebody's kind of at like that crisis level, it's just really eye opening. It's like, I want to help you, but I don't have the tools and I don't know how to help you without saying, call this number, you know, and that was me when I was a kid, you know, I didn't have all these resources for me. You know, I struggled a lot with depression and unfortunate attempts, but uh, fast forwarding to now, it's incredible to see so many people that are willing to put their heart and soul into this kind of, uh, you know, line of work because it takes a really strong person to do this kind of work. So, uh, you know, I've had experience with a crisis counseling myself. So it's, it's really cool to see where you're at now versus where you started, you know? You know, it's the same through line from no matter what education I have that, you know, I truly believe people matter. Every life matters so much. And I want people to know that and know their worth. And, you know, whether that's volunteering at a youth agency or working as a psychologist, like it's the same through line that drives. Right. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's always really nice to see uh, people that are, you know, high up, higher up on that, uh, I guess, totem pole that stay humble, that realize like, you know, it doesn't matter how much uh, schooling I've done. It doesn't matter what I've done. What matters is I'm doing this to help you. What can I do to support you? And what can I do to be there for you? So it's, it's nice to see um, somebody such as yourself who has accomplished as much as you have and still be able to preach the the message that you've sought out to uh, spread to everybody since day one. So that's that's really cool to see. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just to kind of bounce off of that question, um, how did that lead to writing a book? Uh, <laughs> well, honestly, um, I've I've always wanted to write since I was, you know, middle school aged. It was a passion and a direction I thought I might go in, but I probably lacked some of the self-discipline to just get started. So it was always a bit of a dream. Um, and I was actually approached by my publisher uh, to see, based on my experience and, and the work that I did, if I would be interested in writing a book, which of course I was. It was a dream come true for me. So um, that's actually how that got started, kind of an unusual path. And what did that process look like for you? Like uh, about how long did it take to publish your first book? Well, I had some pretty tight deadlines. Um, and that's why I said like the motivation piece came from the outside. And then it was like, okay, get this chapter done by this day. And this is when we're going to start with the edit. So <laughs> I had to, um, I guess it was a good learning process for me that way. Uh, so the whole process um, probably was about eight or so months. Yeah, it came really? together pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's, that's a short amount of time too. Yeah, I know for sure it was really rapid, but um, I did have like great support from my editor editors, and um, yeah, that really helped too to have a turn around and. And just to clarify, because I think I might have my dates mixed around. Uh, you had the gaslighting book out first, right? Yeah, that it was, came uh, out in twenty twenty one in spring. So I started that in twenty twenty, which is probably part of the timing there is, you know, it was the pandemic and we were just staying home and no weekend plans. So I just wrote every day and uh, um, that helped to get it out. So, yeah, you know, when, when the pandemic first happened, uh, I started my mental health group, like 2019, like the very end of 2019. And my initial, I didn't really have long-term goals for it. It was just kind of, I want to save space for myself and others that don't feel like sharing, you know, out there in the open. Cause Social media, as you know, is a very dangerous place. You know, it's a lot of people always trying to uh, out each other. And, you know, so I wanted to create this private group and didn't have any long-term plans. So as that group grow, grew to a thousand and we're almost at 1600 people now, uh, three years later, it's it's incredible to see how many people are willing to come together and try and push that same message that, you know, you or I are, are trying to preach. And uh, then the podcast was born during the pandemic. I had no idea what I was doing when I did my first podcast. You know, I go back and listen to the first one and it's just like, 
it doesn't sound like the same person it was only a year ago mm-hmm. and the pandemic you know like you said taught you a lot of discipline a lot of time management and you want to get things done by a set date because if you don't set a date for yourself she's like oh well I can do it later I can do it later right yeah right okay. um for for both books would you say it took about the same time like about eight months each probably yeah 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 the trauma recovery workbook is like as the title suggests a workbook and so it has a lot more exercises um so it's probably a lower word count but they're about the same size um but yeah I think it took about the same long or so that's one thing I I think was incredible uh, about your book was the little exercises that you added in like every chapter uh you know just kind of like put yourself in this situation or close your eyes and envision this in your safe space and everything. I, I think I wish more uh, books with this, you know, like line of uh, like this subject would do the same, you know, just kind of instead of just all words, because I struggle myself getting through books just because, you know, that was a really bad habit of mine in high school is just like, yeah, I'll just write, read a chapter and then just kind of, you know, uh, I guess, guess my way through a book report kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm older and trying to, you know, uh, push through the, this path in the mental health field, um, being able to see that there's like exercises and then there's little breathing uh, pauses there too helps people like me because my attention span is, is so bad. <laughs> it's it's terrible. <laughs> but um, well, I wanted to yeah. make it really practical because, you know, I love doing what I do, being able to sit with people and work through their trauma and their work with them. But I know there are so, so, so many people who can never access therapy. And so that was one of the driving motivators for me in writing these books is to reach the people who maybe can afford to buy like a $15 book, but can't afford therapy from week to week or don't have access to it with insurance or whatever. So um, I really wanted to make it practical and instill some of the exercises that maybe we might do if we were sitting together to really bring it home and not just let it be a cerebral thought process. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the, one of the biggest things for me, um, is, you know, trying to preach to everybody that, you know, therapy is not for everybody. You know, a lot of people struggle with just like the thought of therapy. It's like, I don't want to tell somebody about my feelings and then just, how does that make you feel? And, you know, that's such a common misconception of therapy. Right. And, um, I, I just feel there's so much information on both the internet and, and these books that, you know, just kind of sit there because either social media has us trained to just scroll, right? And we're not reading things. So that was one of the biggest things that I brought up to my therapist. It's like, you know, every episode that I put out that doesn't have a guest, it's just kind of like, I'm getting this information off the internet and I'm making a podcast about it and just kind of putting my personal story into it because I know a lot of people from my generation, you know, I'm 30. So I know there's a lot of people in my age group that won't go out of the way to read a book or look up a website on resources and stuff. So putting, putting like the exercises and stuff uh, and stuff in books like this definitely help people like me a lot. So again, greatly appreciated that you did that. Great. Thank you for that. So um, just one more question before we dig into the book. Uh, I want to acknowledge the reward that you received because I, I thought it was very powerful when I read uh, what the award was for. So it was the Sandra Wilson Memorial Grant, right? That was the actual award um, from the EMDR Research Foundation. Uh, and you covered mass shootings across the U.S. And I'm sure that was a very hard subject to dig into. So what did that pr- uh, process look like for you, uh, I guess, pursuing that award or grant? Well, I had um, kind of fallen into that work. It became an, an accidental subspecialty when um, I live in Southern California. And there was in um, about six years ago, there was a, a terrorist attack on December 2nd in San Bernardino um, that killed 14 people. And um uh, I ended up with a, a contract with the county that was um, helping to pay, pay for their therapy. And so I saw a lot of survivors from that attack. Um, and then subsequently, there was the, the big infamous uh, Route 90, uh, the Las Vegas um, mass shooting at the concert. Right. Uh, and uh, so I ended up with some more people coming to me from that, since a lot of Southern Californians go to Vegas for their concerts on the weekend. 
And, um, and then there was the one in Borderline uh, bar, bar and Grill in Thousand Oaks, California, which is a bit further from me, but nevertheless, because those were college students, college students are from different places, and I ended up with some contact with survivors from that as well. And so um, it kind of snowballed in that I started to have this subspecialty within trauma that I never anticipated having. And as I worked with these survivors from different um, different types of shootings, different environments, I started to notice there were some patterns that they exhibited in their symptomology that were consistent and yet somewhat different from what we expect with other traumas. And so that got me curious um, and also wanting to perhaps share what I'm observing with other clinicians who might work with other survivors of these shootings, because unfortunately they're happening repeatedly all across the country. And if we're not going to stop it, we at least should know how to respond, um, unfortunately. So, um, so I started doing some research with that and I reached out to clinicians across the country through different networks. Um, because I was doing a lot of EMDR at the time, I wanted to, um, and I'd seen some people who came to me who had had from other things that happened a long time ago and hadn't received that kind of therapy. There was a real difference in their response as well. Um, so I really wanted to compare and contrast different therapy approach with EMDR because I was seeing how effective that was. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so I reached out to clinicians across the country who had helped survivors from any of these um, any mass shootings that we have, you know, we're all quite familiar with on the news from Sandy Hook to Newton, school shootings, community shootings, um, theaters, like there's so many environments and we're unfortunately quite familiar with them. So, uh, yeah, so collecting the stories through the clinicians um, and uh, so it was an interview process where I'm asking questions on certain topics and gathering that information and compiling themes um, where the same things were consistent or different around different things like the symptom presentation and the impacts on social spheres, on uh, spirituality. Um, yeah, a, a lot of different things like that. And so that's what that was for. So where the, um, and you had therapy sessions uh, with the survivors, you said, right? Uh, like, yeah, with some the what those um, several different ones, but yeah. the research was from talking to people across the entire country me into wanting to explore this further. Right. Um, and the the survivors that you you know that you did speak to were was it ever in like a group setting or is it just kind of like one on one? Because I know sometimes if I'm assuming because I'm not really familiar with like the how group therapy works, but I would assume something like that traumatic would have to be a one-on-one -on -one kind of session, right? I do one-on-one -on -one therapy. Um, yeah. I know that at different shootings and in particular in San Bernardino, there were some group things provided. Um, most of the survivors didn't find that particularly helpful because it could be so triggering to be hearing everybody right. else sharing the story or because they would hold back out of fear of triggering other people. So. Yeah, no, that, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I had uh, somebody who had a borderline uh, personality disorder and she was suggested to do group therapy. And when she initially told me about it, um, my first my first thought of group therapy was just kind of what you were saying. You don't want to trigger other people with your stories and you hold back a lot of feelings. So I couldn't imagine somebody with a disorder like that sharing their story and what they face every day and not not uh trigger anybody off of like what they truly feel like how much of i would assume you're only putting half of yourself out there for a group therapy environment so i guess my question for you is do you think that group therapy is effective like i guess in what situation would it be effective that's a great question um it's been a number of years since i've done any group therapy uh when i worked in a residential setting that was part of the program um and those are because for those reasons that you mentioned that those are definitely valid reasons people hold back, but it can be positive in that group therapy can make people realize that they're not alone, that they're not the only one who experiences something. Um, it may not be ideal as a, a first immediate response after a trauma or um, as they're beginning a therapeutic process. 
but it can be helpful, especially with some more ongoing chronic things where there's also an individual component. Uh, we're, we're all pretty familiar with the AA model, which isn't necessarily therapy, but kind of is. Um, that there's an accountability process and a like-mindedness of um, holding each other in that same space and knowing that, again, yeah, you're not alone. You're not the only one who struggles because that's a big thing that comes up with trauma, whether it's um, a shooting or, a, or an assault or child abuse, there's a sense of I'm the only one and I'm different because of it and I can't relate to the rest of the world because I'm stigmatized in some way. Um, and that's often a really profound lie uh, that serves to worsen the effects of the trauma by isolating you. And so that that is actually a really important thing if it can provide that, that sense of solidarity with others and recognition that you're, right. you're not alone. Others yeah, no, that definitely, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, like I said, I guess just kind of thinking about group therapy, just like off the top of my head, I, I wouldn't feel personally comfortable in a group setting just because uh, I guess sharing my my personal story, I know it help it can help people, but at the same time, I, I just I would feel like somebody's comparing their trauma to mine and just kind of like unintentionally making it a competition because I have experienced that before. Yeah. So and I know that's one of the things that we'll we'll get into about your book. And I, I believe that's called uh scaling, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, where okay. you're comparing traumas against each other. I think right. just to conclude on this idea about group therapy, I think the best ones are probably where the focus is on things like coping skills and management of your depression, your anxiety, and r- rather than the traumas that um, that are underneath it and to leave that in an individual setting where you can really process through it without fear of holding back or hurting somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there was there was a phrase in here that I wrote down that I actually took me back um, in, in a really positive way because I was always taught, you know, whatever I've gone through, just create those distractions for yourself, you know, just get through whatever you're going through and have all those distractions around you. One of one of the things that you put in there was feel your feelings, feel the void. Yeah. Those three words, feel the void, blew me away mm. because the way that you put it, just like instead of replacing that void with something temporary, instead of, uh, you know, just kind of looking for the next big thing to keep you on the high instead of staying down here. And you were saying stay down here until you can stand back up. Yeah. I love that. Mm. I got to I got to know where where did that come from? Because, oh, my God. <sighs> hmm. Oh, gosh, I don't know. Where does it originally come from? Uh I don't know, a lot of therapy theorists, my own experience and walking through my own valleys. Um, the truth is that's what a lot of addiction is, right? Is that avoidance, that that not wanting to feel it. And when that pain is there and we just try to stuff it down, we're going to end up in an unhealthy place. Um, when we can walk through those valleys and feel that hurt and that pain, it, it's kind of like if you ever waded out into a cold lake or ocean, it's cold at first and it's shocking, right? But if you stay for a few moments, it doesn't feel as cold anymore, right? right? Nothing is stagnant. No feeling is stagnant. And we're so afraid of feeling the pain that we run from it. But if the pain isn't, I mean, you don't touch a hot stove, right? But cold water doesn't hurt you. Like if it's not gonna completely break you, let yourself feel it and the discomfort will dissipate and you will build strength and find that you can move through it. And that's where healing comes in. That that is just absolutely phenomenal. I when I when I read that last part, um, I was just like, I have to bring this up in the podcast because I, I think that is one of the best phrases I think I've ever heard. Because like you said, stuffing down your trauma and not feeling what you want to feel, and just kind of like you know, I'll, I'll watch a movie all day or I'll do this all day just to keep my mind busy. But meanwhile, all that trauma is just sitting there simmering. And then eventually it just explodes. Yeah, so, underneath you're still unhappy. And like you said, explodes sometimes it comes out as anger, it comes out as depression. It just, it does come out because we can't just make it go away by ignoring it. It's still there. 
Right. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's one of the biggest things I try to tell people if they ever come to me for help, it's just like, you know, I know you're struggling and I want you to know that you're not alone, but you also got to allow yourself to feel what you're feeling. You know, I, I always encourage people to try and cope with, you know, however they can cope. But if you're like, especially during grief, because I'm sure, as you know, if you lose anybody, you know, whether it's uh, somebody loses their life or a a friend or anything uh, cuts ties with you or whatever, grief is one of the most powerful feelings that anybody can feel and i feel like if you don't feel that loss and you don't acknowledge that that those feelings are there it's just going to sit there till it gets worse and it gets worse you know it'll stay waiting for you yeah yeah read through it yeah right and sometimes you know if you've grown up with this without permission to feel your feelings and emote and express them that gets deeply internalized it's as an unwritten rule it's not okay to feel it's not okay to express my feelings and that's that's garbage messaging that hurt you then and is hurting you now yeah so that's something to really critically examine and maybe release so that you can you can heal now right and you know that was that was a message that was kind of kind of give it to me growing up was just kind of you're a man you got to be a man and men don't express their feelings kind of thing so you know, back to what I was saying earlier about where we've come from to where we are now is is phenomenal because, you know, reading things like feeling the void, I wouldn't have heard that when I was 14. I would have just heard from my parents, oh, well, stop, stop being upset. Uh, it's just a relationship or it's just this or it's just that. Yeah. And reading that, I, I want to say had had a massive, had a massive impact on my heart, like honest to God, incredible. So for for anybody who needs to hear it again, feel the void and healing will come, you know, one day at a time that, you know, that's one thing I always try to preach as well, you know, one day at a time and uh, progress, not perfection, you know, a step is still a step, no matter how big and how small it is. Absolutely. And uh, there, there's one more phrase that I wrote down that another one just kind of blew me away was, Boundary setting is not a negotiation. Mm-hmm. Mind blown. I, when I read that, I smiled so big, like I am like an idiot, but <laughs> um, boundaries are something that were very foreign to me growing up. You know, I never was able to put up boundaries with my parents, you know, just kind of growing up in a emotionally abusive household yeah. and boundaries weren't something that I knew of until I started therapy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you, when you learn to put up those boundaries and you're able to start healing, like uh, I believe one of the stories that you shared towards the end of the book was uh, somebody didn't want to go to like a, I think it was a holiday party because of a narcissistic parent, I believe it was. And their whole family just trying to gaslight her saying that, oh, you know, you're over-exaggerating or whatever. And then her response was, all right, uh, she didn't respond until the next month. I'm like, wow, it it really is incredible to see how powerful a boundary truly can be for somebody. Yeah, you know, people who want to control you and families that want to control you aren't going to teach you boundaries. And so you show up in adulthood without any sense of that. And it can hurt you in so many dynamics from work to friendships, to dating and on and on. And so that's, it's such a powerful thing when you realize that you have the right to boundaries, you can create boundaries that are healthy for you and you can enforce them. Yeah. And, and, you know, just to kind of add to my message of my age group of, you know, like the boundaries conversation, I had people about the same age as me who kind of sort of dealt with what they did with my parents with their parents um and i told them i said you know you gotta put up boundaries so what are what are boundaries i don't know what boundaries are like if you really think about it like boundaries are something that'll change your life and they absolutely changed my life like i i don't think i would have been able to do this podcast or been able to do therapy or any of that without boundaries and when you're able to start putting up those boundaries you can start taking care of yourself whether it's mentally physically and emotionally. Yeah, boundaries are rooted in some amount. You have to have a, a seed of self-love, yeah, right? Yeah. If you can respect yourself en- enough that your needs matter, 
then you construct boundaries to protect those. And so then a boundary allows you to love yourself and others at the same time. So it doesn't have to become one or the other. Yeah, and I absolutely want to highlight that word that word self-love because that's something I feel so many struggle with. You know, it's it's hard to tell yourself that you love yourself when you're struggling. Yeah. And we feel like there's that. there's a little activity that my therapist uh came up with for me. It's called the compassionate observer. Basically mm-hmm. what it is is you're talking in two perspectives. You're talking from your, you know, whatever negative emotion you're feeling. And then you try to reply to it with, with like the logical side of you. And I always try to end every single one with, I love you. When I wrote that first one, my therapist just kind of dropped, she dropped her jaw and she like, I would have never expected, like you did really, really good for that activity. So amazing. It gives me chills. I love that. Yeah. And you know, when you're able to look in the mirror and tell yourself that I love you, it's powerful. Self-love is something I didn't have probably 99% of my life because I was, you know, just grew up around narcissistic parents. And And if you're taught that you're not worthy of love, you will not learn to love yourself. But that's a lie. That's always a lie. Every child is worthy of love. And every one of us adults is just an overgrown child. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And no, honoring your inner child is another really powerful uh, phrase that I've learned too. It's something I never, never really understood when people said that, I guess, if I've ever heard it throughout my life, when I started understanding what that meant. And again, boundaries, um, it helped you, you know, hug that inner child that was been battered and bruised your whole entire life. And you start feeling that inner peace within yourself. Yeah. So let's, let's move on to the book. Um, Okay. So my first question about the book. Do you feel that narcissists purposely uh, target more people with mental illness uh, in order to remain in control and use those tools of manipulation and gaslighting? Largely. Um, Somebody like that, a a gaslighter is somebody who wants to have control of others. And it's easiest to control somebody when you see a weakness or a need, something that that your target is missing. So very often that's going to be there's there's going to be some mental illness there's going to be unmet childhood needs uh, a need for love a need for family um a need for self-love like we were just talking about so very very often you you're going to find that will be somebody with mental illness and also if it doesn't stick they're going to move on quickly right a gaslighter wants to be in control and so if they start putting their attentions on somebody who's just like not interested in that kind of dynamic they'll shift because they want to have the feeling of power. And so if you've grown up in a dynamic where these, this kind of gaslighting and things like that and control have been present, it won't feel so unfamiliar or as wrong as it should feel. It'll feel normal. And so you're more likely to stay in that dynamic with the gaslighter. So there's kind of a, a marriage, a meeting of those two dynamics. So essentially it's kind of that revolving door or cycle, if you will, of just constantly being gaslit or just being aware of what a narcissist is, but it's your normal. It's what you're quote unquote uh, used to seeing. So it's just kind of hard to break out of that cycle. Right. Most gaslighters are very charming and can present this really amazing outside layer, but there's always red flags. But if you're not really familiar with a really healthy relationship, it's going to be hard to identify the red flags for being red flags and to be able to contrast that with what healthy looks like. So you're more likely to stick around and continue to be psychologically abused and manipulated. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you said that they're they're charming because it's definitely something I've noticed uh, with my mom more specifically. Uh, I remember the first time uh, I started like noticing the things that she was doing to me. I think I was like, maybe early 20s and I was talking to a friend about what was going on oh your mom she seems so sweet she wouldn't do anything like that and I don't think my friend was trying to like stick up for my mom or anything I guess it was just kind of a they didn't see it for themselves so it didn't happen kind of thing and when those red flags started becoming like more and more common and realizing like I gotta get out of this situation as soon as possible most people don't even have that option of getting out 
you know, it's and so hard to get out because gaslighters are savvy. So they cultivate this world where that that charm is very present. Um, an impulsive, abusive, explosive person that that person others might see like, oh, yeah, they're really out of control. And this is unhealthy. But a gaslighter is that insidious, savvy person who's doing mind games with you. They're in enough control of themselves most of the time that they can present a whole different view to the outside world, which isolates you so that when you want to get out, other people don't see it. They don't support you or encourage you or even offer you that safe place that you need to go. One thing that I always found pretty uh, amazing was like you were saying, when it doesn't stick and they start to shift away from, uh, I guess, not being able to gaslight you or whoever else is going through that and they move on to somebody else. When I started uh, my healing journey, when I was first in New Jersey, was my first therapist. Um, I was only with her for three months and that three months completely like opened my eyes to like everything around me. When I was starting to be able to call out my mom uh, of the things that she was doing and she didn't, you know, she didn't like that. She was just like, oh, well, I didn't say that you're making that up. Like just an attempt to like kind of push yeah. you back like you're imagining things. The defensive gaslighting. Right. Yeah. And when I made the decision to move back down here to Florida, she realized that she doesn't have me under her thumb anymore. And the healing started coming because she couldn't hurt me anymore. You were safe. Yeah. And breaking that cycle of uh, just being constantly told that nobody cares about you or you're as bad as this person or X, Y, Z, you're making all these, this story up. Yeah. And when you bring up things to them and they just, Oh, well, leave it in the past kind of thing. Like it never happened. No responsibility taking Yeah, You're just very classic gaslighting years. Mm -hmm. it's 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 incredible what happens when when healing starts because you start to realize so much you know yeah um so this is uh actually a question because uh you had listed different types of personalities in your in your book and it's always kind of something i've wondered how the process works so you have uh from like antisocial uh personality disorder to anywhere to uh borderline personality disorder how do you determine what kind of personality someone uh, someone may struggle from? So for me, th- those are diagnostic categories. The antisocial personality disorder, which is somebody who's quite sociopathic, um, enjoys cruelty toward others. A narcissistic personality disorder, the person who really just craves adoration and accolades and being the spotlight and will be quite cruel in because they only really care about themselves. The borderline personality disorder, somebody who's quite impulsive um, in their relationships, they're very volatile. Um, and they'll do whatever serves in the moment in order to meet their needs for attachment, but in a very unhealthy way. Um, so those are generally diagnostic categories. And I think I mentioned them in my book to kind of give a framework that a lot of times um, gaslighters have this kind of pathology. And the point of that is just to identify that as much as they try to say there's something wrong with you, you're mentally ill, although you may end up with mental illness thanks to all the abuse you've suffered, but they often will point to you and say, you're the problem, you've got mental illness, if you weren't so broken, I wouldn't have to, all that kind of stuff. The truth of the matter is, these behaviors come from this personality pathology, they're not well. And so I write about that to really encourage the reader to understand, like, you're not the problem. Right. So it's not as important um, for for the average person to figure out like what exactly kind of disorder do you do I think my my parent my ex my whatever has but to just really understand like it's not about you right yeah no that that definitely putting it in that perspective definitely makes a lot more sense because whenever uh, I first read it it was just kind of one of those questions I wrote down because I guess I never really understood like the disorder uh, portion of the mental mental illness uh, category like I know what they are but mm-hmm. like I guess I never really understood uh, how exactly one determines uh, you know what what somebody is suffering from but the way that you put it makes a lot more sense for sure yeah I think you know there's a reason that clinicians need to have a get a handle on it as far as if you're treating somebody who shows up with these symptoms then having an understanding of what you're dealing with can guide how to help the person um, but in general, what matters most to the average person and in your healing is how did this person impact you? Right. 
and yeah, trust yourself about that. that yeah, the message of uh, you know it's not it's not you. It's it's just what what that disorder is, but also doesn't excuse how they treat you as well. So yeah, absolutely. Yes, thank you for saying that. That's really important. Yeah, um, you know, one of the biggest things I struggled with with my mom was. Uh, I was always told that, you know, she suffered from, you know, bipolar, she had depression, she had, you know, health issues. And I remember when I first started therapy and first started struggling really bad with my mom, because when I started therapy, she didn't like that I was starting to break away from her and becoming my own person. Um, And I remember a family member, I believe it was my aunt was saying, oh, well, she's not mentally well. And she's doing all this because such and such didn't like say it's not your fault that she's treating you that way. It's just, you know, she's just not well. And it was just kind of cut off there. So I guess that was the only reason I, I had to add the part in there was it's important to note that the people that are mentally ill, while yes, it's unfortunate that they're going through that. Uh, oh, wait, I think my video is messing up. Sorry. Okay. Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> um, but it's also important to note that uh, it doesn't excuse how how you're being treated, and your more the, your feelings are absolutely valid. You know, hundred percent. It can sometimes help to contextualize your experience when it's very easy for a child, especially, to blame themselves and to say like, "What did I do that my parents?" Um, abused me this way, neglected me, didn't care, called me these things, like, what's wrong with me that they were not the parent I needed to be? And it's so important to, to even if we understand, like, there was mental illness involved, it wasn't about you. That doesn't right. take away at all from the fact that you didn't get what you needed, and you were hurt in ways that you never deserved to be hurt. Yeah, definitely. Um, the next question I had for you was, um, with the different kinds of gaslighters listed in your book, is there one that I guess is most common or is it just kind of like situational or? Yeah. So I talked about, um, the, the sadistic gaslighter, which would be like the really cruel one who just takes delight in playing mind games with you. That's probably your least common one, but it is definitely a very damaging one. And so there's almost a reverse order, I think, in that. So I talk about the sadistic, the narcissistic gaslighter, um, the defensive insecure gaslighter, and then the accidental gaslighter, which isn't really gaslighting, but it's worth mentioning because you may have that experience of feeling gaslit by somebody who really just has memory issues. Um, and so the most damaging is probably the least common um, and the most common might be the least damaging in their effect because of the intention of it right, right. if somebody's intending to be cruel it's going to hurt even more than somebody who is trying to protect themselves so i would say that probably the most common is that defensive insecure um, the narcissistic gaslighter is unfortunately too common and causes a lot of damage um, and so it's kind of in that sweet spot of getting a lot of attention because it's common enough that it resonates with a number of people, um, but it's extraordinarily damaging. But I don't want to say that there is gaslighting that isn't damaging, even when it's like that accidental thing, it can kind of be a bit of a mind trip. Um, but that defensive insecure kind of behavior is also quite damaging because again, it's centering the other person. And healthy relationships happen when we center, sorry, it's centering themselves. A healthy relationship happens when we center the other person as well as ourselves. Like we have our boundaries, um, but we reach out with care and concern and love for the other person. Right. Yeah, no, uh, the narcissist uh, narcissist gaslighter definitely is something I, I feel I've experienced my whole life. And um, I wasn't sure if the other ones listed were more common, but um yeah, it's, it's unfortunate to see that be so common because it, like you said, you know, gaslighting, no matter if it's accidental or if it's the sadistic, it's, it affects you in one way or another. And a lot of people don't realize how bad words hurt until it happens. You know, like the, the old saying, uh, words cut like a knife. And it, it's true because um, so many, I feel like so many parents do it to their kids. Yeah. And I, I've seen it you know, aside from my own experience, 
I've seen it from my friends' parents. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's something I wish my parents' generation had a lid on before they had kids because I feel like, again, back to the cycle. It just kept going and got worse, and got worse. You know. Yeah. You know, I think it's one thing that's kind of nice about this younger generation waiting longer to have kids. It might be because of economics or whatever other reasons, but it gives us time to stop and pause and reflect and heal before we pass it on to the next generation if having children is part of your life plan or, or, or works out. I absolutely agree. You know, uh, being 30, you know, um, I did a podcast, uh, I think maybe two, three episodes ago about social norms, about how, you know, people my age, if they don't have kids, it's like, you know, my time is running out. I got to have this by this age. I got to have this by that age. And like you were saying, the younger generation is kind of smashing that social norm where it's just like, either it's not emotionally feasible for me to have kids or just not financially ready for those kids. Cause I grew up with really young parents and while they were growing up and finding themselves, they were trying to raise me and, you know, again, not to excuse their behavior and how I was treated, but uh, you know, they grew up with a system that was broken too. Yeah. And while we have resources now and we're preaching the message more than we have in the last 20 years, there's still so much ground to cover, you know, and so many cycles that are still continuing, but yeah. Uh, you know, subjects like gaslighting, it, it becoming a word that is becoming more common and people being able to identify of how toxic a certain relationship may be and free themselves and be able to start healing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so to kind of add to that, um, add to that question, would you consider comparing traumas a form of gaslighting? That's an interesting question. Um, I guess it, it it depends how it's used. So a gaslighter, I could very much see doing that. Like your, whatever you went through isn't so bad. Your brother went through this or, you know, you're not as bad as this other group. So it's used in that way to diminish your pain and to deflect away from it, which is a pretty classic gaslighter move. Um, often people compare their own traumas and you can't really gaslight yourself because you're not trying to control yourself um, in that way. But that's also a really damaging thing. Um, when people, I, I so often have people come into the therapy office and say, well, you know, I didn't go through this or that. So I really shouldn't, you know, feel my feelings, work through the therapy. Like I don't have a right to be here and heal is basically what they're saying because no matter what they've been through, it's like some of the most horrific things I've ever heard. And they're like, yeah, but it wasn't as bad as X. I'm like, oh my goodness, can we just all heal? You don't have to. And maybe that's because that's been a message, right? There's such profound effects of that. Your feelings don't matter because they're not as bad as so-and-so. That doesn't matter. What matters is what you feel, how you've experienced something, whether it was intentional, accidental, sadistic. If you've been hurt, you're allowed to feel the hurt and to move through that. Right. And, and, you know, just to kind of add to uh, the feel your feelings part of, you know, uh, I've experienced a lot of uh, traumas being compared, you know, it's just like, oh, well, you got emotionally abused, at least you didn't get this, this and this happened. It's like, listen, I may not have been this kind of abused, but it still affected me in a way where I'm going to therapy and I'm trying to heal myself. So your feelings are valid. My feelings are valid. Mm -hmm. And that whenever the group first formed, and I think people were kind of stuck in that social media uh, mentality where, uh, you know, oh, well, you didn't have this happen to you. So what you're talking about doesn't matter kind of thing. And I had to express to him, like, listen, I've gone through more than I care to talk about sometimes. And I shared my story in an attempt to help somebody, not to diminish what anybody else has gone through. So if you're going to share your story, share your story. This is a safe space. But if you're going to share your story, don't diminish what your sister went through. Don't diminish what your best friend went through. Your feelings are your own. And, you know, like you said, feel your feelings and validate yourself and validate others, quite frankly. Yeah. And and you, you know, as you're saying, you're recognizing, like, I went through this really painful thing and I didn't go through that. You can even have a little bit of space for gratitude that you didn't also experience that without diminishing that 
emotional abuse is incredibly damaging because it's attacking the core of who you are as you're developing as a human being. That's really, really problematic. And if we aren't willing to face that, unless it's tacked on with some other abuse, we cripple society at large. Yeah, I, I remember when my parents first started telling me that I can open up to them and and everything else. And I guess I didn't know how to express myself properly without telling them what I was having trouble with. Mm-hmm. Um, now that I'm older and I can have a conversation with them and know my wording and everything else and how to talk to them, um, I, I limit what I say to both of them because I know what kind of people they are. Um, when I was younger, it was just, oh, oh, well, it's not that bad. Your childhood wasn't that bad. And I did my best. And again, uh, diminishing and just kind of devalidating anything that I was feeling. You want me to tell you what's going on? I'm telling you. And now that I'm expressing myself, it means nothing. That's pretty much what they're telling me. Let me tell you a short little story. Oh, I have a child. Um, And when he was really little, I was having coffee with a friend and we were talking about, um, I was telling her, I don't remember why, that at one point we had talked about adopting. And I said, um, I wanted an older child, meaning that we were looking at adopting an older child, right? Well, my little two-year-old hears that. And he says to me in the sweet, sad little voice, mama, that hurts my feelings. And I was like, oh my gosh, he heard me say, I wanted an older kid, not this toddler. So if he hadn't spoken up and said, "Um, that hurts my feelings, I never would have had the chance to step in and say, oh, I love you and want you so much. And let me explain what I was talking about and heal that little wound right away. So the point, point is intent and wounding can be so different, right? I could have deeply wounded my child at that moment and never meant to be cruel. And so when a parent says, um, you know, I did my best, that should never undermine the fact that you've been hurt because those two things can be separate. Even, you know, if if they're a great parent or if they're not so great, but you know, we're doing their best, your wounds are your wounds and you don't have to apologize for how you feel. You don't have to diminish how you feel. You don't have to avoid working through it because somebody else was doing their best. Yeah. And, you know, isn't it interesting how uh, just bright kids are at a very young age when they notice everything around them and they're expressing things that some adults can't even express. I didn't know he was listening. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, you know, I've had uh, conversations with little kids that, you know, things that they shouldn't have seen or heard or just talking about now. And with the age of technology, it's almost impossible to avoid that now. But I've had conversations with six-year-old kids that I'm like, what are you, why are you saying all these things? Like, you're only six. Why aren't you playing with blocks? Mm-hmm. And sorry about that. The video keeps going out. Um, and it's just incredible how much they absorb and how much they express at such a young age. And that little bit of influence from adults around them can just completely shut that down and just like put a lid on it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you know, sometimes we think like, Oh, well this happened before a certain age, they won't remember it, but we incorporate incorporate those wounds into our psyche. Right. And so this story could have ended in a totally different way where I never knew he thought that he just internalized it. He forgot the moment and just grew up thinking I'm not wanted and feeling unwanted, you know, and that sets a really deep tone. Yeah. Um, Where is, okay. Um, At what age do you think it's possible for uh, an individual, I guess, to start identifying gaslighting behaviors? Like is there a specific age or just kind of individual experiences, I guess? Like as a child, perhaps growing up being gaslit, when do they start? When are you capable of recognizing what's going on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, usually not so early, unfortunately, because children, because we're dependent on the adults that are raising us, um, we tend to put them on a bit of a pedestal. They are godlike and we are you know, dependent. And so when things aren't going well in a relationship, we tend to blame ourselves. If dad is yelling, then it's because I'm a bad boy or if mom's cruel, it's because I'm not worthy of love. 
right? And so that can persist for a long time. And sometime during adolescence, it starts to shift. Um, and we start to look at things more objectively, more abstractly. Um, and then maybe, you know, I see young people are so much more psychologically savvy than they've been before. And it's a beautiful thing. Um, sometime in the teen years, I think they're able to recognize like, if I've got the language for it, I can label it. And that's why I think, you know, one of the purposes of my book too is to create, and I think it's well well known now, um, but to create that language, create that understanding, what is gaslighting? And when you know what it is and you recognize it, then you can see if it's happening in your relationship and you can call it out, even if just internally calling it out. Um, so it's a combination of maturity and I think knowing what you're looking for. Yeah, I was I was assuming around teenagers too, uh, teenage years as well that makes uh that makes a lot of sense considering that's when you start like noticing your emotions and noticing how you're feeling about certain things so i guess yeah that make, definitely makes a lot of sense when yeah, your and body's changing. and not just always trusting your parents when you're little like you trust them if they tell you that the sky is purple or like, oh i thought it was blue you know and so when they tell you that um that what you saw is not what really happened right classic gaslighting move you question yourself and that does make you feel a little bit crazy yeah what gaslighting is and does right so this is this is a question i kind of kind of came up with because uh, of my experience with bullying is there is there a link between gaslighting and bullying at all yeah um you know, I think about that classic, like, you know, the kid is like making you hit yourself and like, stop hitting yourself. Stop. That's, <laughs> that's gaslighting, right? <laughs> like, I'm not hitting myself. You're talking. Interesting. Right. And also, I think we use that word bullying so much in a child context, but really what it is, parents bully their kids a lot. And that's one way that they do it. To, rem- to remain in control. It's all about controlling somebody else. Wow. I never thought of that. The, the hitting yourself thing kind of, wow. Right. It, just, it took me back a little bit. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I never, I guess I never put two and two together. You know, like I said, gaslighting was kind of a newer term to me mm-hmm. uh, in the last like two years or so. So hearing that bullying and, and that kind of go hand in hand with each other, because I've been bullied by my parents. So that's something wow yeah wow that makes a lot of sense (laughs) (laughs) well and it's like what we were talking about earlier how these gaslighters look for people where they see some vulnerability or need in them to exploit so bullies are going to do the same and so often the people who are bullied are people who are not being treated well at home why because those bullies these gaslighters they look for that vulnerability there's that need for love that hasn't been fulfilled so there's a little less confidence Ah, there's a target. Wow. <laughs> That's uh something. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for kind of clarifying that for me because now that's another thing that blew my mind because I never put two <laughs> <it> together. <laughs> um, so like, how did the seven steps come to be for you in this book? Like, was there a process of figuring out these steps or is it just kind of like you added personal experience into these steps? Mm. Yeah, it's probably a lot of things coming together as well, as far as like, this is what, you know, I walk people through in different ways without being so formalized in treatment. It's, um, it's somewhat similar in some ways to like AA, right? Where you've got, first you acknowledge you've got a problem and, and you move forward from there. Like the first step to changing anything is recognizing that it's an issue and deciding, right? Um, yeah. Is there any one step that stands out for you? Like for me personally, I would say the grieving step stands out for me massively because I've lost a lot of friends in the last year, uh, both to, you know, passing away and just friendships. Um, so that one really stuck out to me because, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the feel the void and feel your feelings, uh, came to part, but is there any one step that sticks out to you the most, like that you just like resonate with? You know, I was going to say the same thing as soon as you asked that, that I think the grief stage um, stands at the most in my mind, partly because we like to skip that as a society. 
you know, I mean, whether it's formal grief, you know, somebody dies, you have three days off work, now go back to work and we've moved on, like really, you know, where other societies, it's a whole year long process and we're just, you know, a few days. Um, we try to avoid pain so much in our society. And I think it's important to call that out that we need to stop and feel it, you know, to count the cost to have self-compassion because self-compassion is just the root of healing. Um, and that's why I think that that really stands out the most to me. Um, grieving, not just like being sad, but allowing yourself to move through that process to count the cost, to let the feelings um, show up, let the tears flow, whatever it takes. And, um, and in that you're even starting to love yourself because you're allowing yourself that compassion, right? And from there, everything builds like a layer on top of it. From there, the self-care that um, that you need when you're going through a grieving process, right? right? Um, you know, we've talked a little bit earlier and then just kind of now touching barely on it about avoidance behaviors versus moving through. And then you mentioned something about coping skills. And so I just wanted to like distinguish those two, you know, avoidance where we're filling things or filling ourselves up with something to avoid our feelings like food or alcohol or drugs or we're binge watching sometimes that's um that's the avoidance part and then the coping skills are ways that we allow ourselves to feel and comfort ourselves at once so it's not avoiding the feeling so that can be things like a coping skill can even be allowing yourself to cry it can be calling a friend it can be writing a journal um, it can be all kinds of sensory things um, that are comforting to you like wrapping yourself in a warm blanket and having a cup of tea, um, taking a warm bath, uh, but it's, it's where you allow to move through with comfort. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think it's, to me, I feel like the grieving process is where most of the healing happens. I feel, you know, like you said, when you start feeling everything and you start acknowledging that, you know, you lost this person or you lost this friendship or you lost this relationship. And then you start discovering who you are as a person and what voids in your life that you need to feel and heal from at the same time. So I think it's the most powerful of, of stages uh, just, just in general, the grief process is like you said, a lot of people avoid pain. Mm -hmm. And I think the healthiest way is to embrace pain, you know, uh, it's it's really hard to swallow that pill, but grief is something that is essential in life. You know, it's just a part of the life cycle, you know, whether it's somebody passing on, whether it's new people coming into your life after others left, you know, you always have to welcome in change. And a lot of people don't like that change. And like you said, the avoidance behavior. Mm -hmm. It's unpleasant and it's so painful, but if we stuff it down, we deaden all of our feelings if we don't right. allow ourselves to feel the hurt, we can't feel joy ever again. So, and, and yeah, so like that grief stage within the stages. So like just for your listeners to recount them, the first is like um, acknowledging it, recognizing what it is and accepting that it's happening. And then grief, allowing yourself to grieve all of the, the things that this gaslighting has taken from you, relationships, things you've given up, things um, associated with that. And then everything else builds from there. So that's like, that's the valley. And then it starts to go back up again. And that's the important thing about grief is, and feeling your feelings is trusting that it's the bottom of the valley. It's not where you stay. And from there, we layer on the next step is, um, it, is taking care of yourself, focusing on yourself, um, building things into your life that maybe you've never been able to when you're in relationship with this gaslighting, controlling person, um, setting boundaries that allow you to, you know, take up space in the world and build relationships that you want, um, making decisions about the people in your life, such as, and that's kind of connected to boundaries, but like, who are you going to let close and how close are you going to let them and how are you going to spend your time? And then even reaching out and building new healthy relationships with people that will treat you as you deserve to be treated. Absolutely. I couldn't have said that any better. That was incredible. Um, at the end of every podcast, I like to read a little quote and I know we kind of talked about um, a last part of your book that I wanted to read to uh, our listeners today. And, you know, basically it's just kind of a, a final word uh, from yourself uh, about the book. So I'm going to read the last uh, two paragraphs uh, really quick. Um, so if parts of this book resonated with you and other parts didn't connect, that's okay. Take what is useful to you and leave the rest. Gaslighting relationships are diverse and have varying levels of impact 
depending upon the type, timing, and duration of the relationship. Consequently, your experiences and recovery process may vary. You are unique and your journey is your own. Know that you are worthy of love and respect. Any experience or message that told you otherwise was a lie. Hold on tightly to this truth. Let it guide you forward as you seek out and build the life you desire. Deborah, thank you so, so much for this podcast. I, I think it was, uh, this is probably going to be one of my favorite episodes to go back and listen to, honestly. Oh, well, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today. Yeah. Um, where can the, the listeners uh, find you at on socials? Sure. Um, you can find me on Instagram at trauma therapy doc. Um, also on TikTok, same handle. Um, I'm on Facebook uh, under my, my business name. So that's facebook.com Tamar Counseling Services. And um, oh, I'm just about everywhere you can find people, Pinterest, <laughs> LinkedIn, all those ones are kind of boring though, so. <laughs> and uh, just for the people that do listen to on YouTube, here's the book, it's called Gaslighting. Um, it's by Dr. Deborah Vinal. I hope I didn't butcher that last name. Okay. That <laughs> um, thank you guys all so very much for listening. And Deborah, thank you again so much for being a guest on this podcast um, for all my listeners be well and always remember be gentle with yourselves till next time. Take care.